All right, as Ben said, it's in Romans 8, uh, verses 1 through 4. I'll give you guys a second to uh, turn on your phones. All right, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is the very word of God. Seems like uh, nowadays, um, in the current time we're in, there's a lot of really emotional courtroom scenes that are playing out in the news every day. Um, I once served on a jury, and it was quite an experience. It was a a, uh, federal case, and the case was actually pretty clear-cut. I think we as a jury deliberated for 45 minutes, and that was only because we thought we kind of had to take our time and look over things once again. It was just so clear uh, what the verdict would be that it didn't take us very long. Nevertheless, uh, when we went back in the courtroom, and you've seen the scene, uh, you know the scene if you've never actually been in a courtroom, uh, the judge says, have you reached a verdict? We said yes, and then the uh, the foreman, what do they call it? Is that right? Reads the verdict. Um, even though I knew it was coming, of course, it was still, and even though it was clear that we had made the right decision, it was still really emotional. Um, in this particular case, the uh, defendant was clearly guilty, and we knew that that meant he was going to jail. That's a big deal. That is a really big deal. And the emotions of that moment, I will never forget. And I'm thinking of that kind of emotion, that kind of setting, as we come now to the eighth chapter of the book of Romans. Something monumental and consequential is happening right here. A verdict is about to be read. A verdict of condemnation against sin. Not against you. A verdict of judgment against sin. In our union with Jesus, Jesus, the Son of God, anyone can now be freed from the condemnation of sin and free to live in harmony with God's Spirit. In our union with Jesus, who is the Son of God, anyone, anyone can now be free of sin and free to live in harmony With God's Holy Spirit. I want us to feel the emotion of the moment that's happening in Romans chapter 8. As we consider this morning in these four verses. How it is that God condemned sin. These verses 
take us first to see the day of God's judgment. Second, the act of God's judgment. And then finally, the life of God's judgment. The day of God's judgment. The decisive act of God's judgment. And then the resulting life that comes after his judgment. So let's look here now at Romans 8, the very first verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Could there be a more spectacular, hopeful, wonderful verse in the Bible than that? There is therefore now, right now, no condemnation, none left over whatsoever. When, when Pastor Daryl said on the authority of God's word, you are free, that's good news. That's what the Bible says. That's the high point that we're at right here. And following what was said at the end of chapter 7 we have now turned a corner. There's a clear line of transition. The therefore here in verse 1 is pointing us forward to everything that Paul is going to say in Romans chapter 8, one of the most glorious chapters in the Bible. This chapter is meant to bring us relief from the tension that we felt in chapter 7. Do you remember that? Hopefully you've been following along if you haven't been here on the live stream. Chapter 7 left us in this turmoil that we feel. And now the relief has come. And the relief has come because, note this, God's day of judgment has come and has passed. The day of judgment, you know, that, that final great day of judgment for those who are in Christ has already passed. And so with that day passing comes this good news for the world. Now, let's just make sure we're on, we're on the same path here. The word condemnation, the word condemnation in Romans 8, 1 it is a judicial word. The courtroom is the kind of place where you would hear this kind of word. And there's no doubt that in this courtroom scene, the implied judge is the God of the universe. But it is not individual sinners who are on trial right here. You and I, as fallen sinners, in Romans 8, are not defendants. We are on the side of the prosecution. The condemnation that Paul is referring to here is the one that he first brought up back in Romans chapter 5. In fact, the word that's used here in Romans 8.1 occurs elsewhere in the New Testament only in Romans 5.16 and 18. So if we're going to see the scene the way Paul is setting it up, we have to remember what Paul did in Romans chapter 5. Back there, if you remember, he took us all the way back to the beginning, to the Garden of Eden, 
to the story of the world, not just the story of individual sinners. There he reminded us that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. The result, Romans 5, 16, of one man's sin was condemnation. Indeed, verse 18 says, condemnation for all humanity. In other words, since you and I, as human beings, all share in Adam, we have already come under condemnation, the condemnation of sin. We have already been on the side of the defense and found guilty. That day of judgment has already come. So what you and I need is to be vindicated from it. We, we need a way out of the condemnation of sin. We need a way out of the death sentence, which is the result of sin. And that's the story. That's the picture that we ought to have in mind when we come to Romans chapter 8. The hope, the promise, the expectation is that right here something will be done to overthrow sin as a power not just over you and your individual guilt and your guilty conscience, but over the entire universe. So in this courtroom scene, we are more like the plaintiff rather than, than the defendant. We are, we are not the ones on trial. Sin is on trial. Nevertheless, what happens if sin gets off the hook? then you and I would remain under its power. That's the condemnation that Paul is talking about. And it's the reason why Paul can say he is not ashamed of the gospel. This gospel is a message of hope for the world, for all the world. It's not a message of religion, if by religion we are referring to that which deals with immaterial things like where you might be after you die. This is a message of good news about the world you live in now and indeed the hope that you might be able to live here forever. So read verse 3 now. I'm going to jump to verse 3 in light of its clear connection to verse 1. Verse 1 says, There is now hope of no condemnation. There is a reality in which there is life free of sin and its death sentence. How could that be? How could there be a world like that? And the answer is because of what God did. Verse 3 is straightforward. The main sentence of verse 3 is this. God condemned sin. Now, I want you to note two things. The verb here, the verb form, the noun was in verse 1. This is the verb form. The verb condemned means not just that God declared sin guilty, but that he has also brought about its punishment. So no condemnation in verse 1 means no guilt, but it also means no penalty. It means that whatever sin has done to us here is now a way out of its clutches. Verse 3 argues not that God will condemn sin, but that God has already condemned sin. It is done, over, finished. Now, this is an extraordinary claim. 
This is why Paul has to explain his gospel. I, I just think of it. What would it actually mean if God has already condemned sin? So here, I hurry to point out the second thing in this main sentence. What God has declared guilty and upon which he has already carried out its sentence is sin. Now, hopefully you remember from what we saw last week, when he mentions sin here, he is referring to sin as a ruling and regulating power. In other words, sin in Romans 7 and 8 in particular is personified. Sin is an actor an aggressor. It seizes opportunities, Romans 7, verses 8 and 11. It produces death, Romans 7, 13. It takes control and ownership over fallen human beings, Romans 7, 14 through 17. Here in Romans 8, verse 2, you'll notice it is contrasted. Sin is contrasted with the Holy Spirit, So this sin or evil is not some impersonal force or power. This is sin with a capital S. It is not just evil, which our Lord teaches us we are to pray to be delivered from, but the evil one, as I think the Lord's prayer should be understood. What Paul tells us here in verse 3 is that God has done it. He has delivered you from the evil one. When you pray the Lord's prayer, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. God's answer to that prayer is yes. Yes. You have been set free. You have already, sin has been condemned. The evil one has no power over you. He has already brought about not only the condemnation, but also a punishment. He has condemned sin. This great victory has already come. Now, let's ponder this good news together a little bit more this morning. I want you to see how it has come about. How has God acted? The day of judgment has come, but how, how, how has it come? What, what was God's great act of judgment, this great act of victory? How did it come to pass? And here we simply have to park in verse 3. God's victory over sin, over Satan, over the evil one, came when, here's what it says, here's how God did it. Here's the act. By sending his own son. So God's victory came when? When God sent his son, the Lord Jesus. So we're talking about a particular time in history, right? When we say the Apostles' Creed and we mention suffered under Pontius Pilate, Pontius Pilate makes the creed to root us in a time and place in real history. We're talking about events that have taken place some 2,000 years ago. That's when this day of judgment came. To be the Son of God here, when he sent his Son, the Son of God means to be God's anointed one, chosen to rule as God's representative on earth. In the Old Testament, the phrase son of God can actually be used to refer to the nation of Israel or to Israel's representative king. 
But of course, the great expectation is that it especially refers to the promised king, the great king, the greatest king, the Messiah, the anointed one, the great deliverer, the one that the Bible clearly says this is who Jesus was. But here's the thing about Jesus as the son of God. He was not like the other sons of God, the other kings of Israel. His messiahship was really strange. Because as striking and consequential as his life was, far more striking and consequential was his death. And that is crazy. Here's what I mean. Second Temple Judaism, we're talking the first century, the time of Jesus. Second Temple Judaism, after Ezra and Nehemiah, the temple has been rebuilt. During this time, there were many would-be messiahs, no shortage of them. You can read about them in history. Lots Lots of movements within Judaism to bring about the kingdom of God that was promised. But here's what would always put an end to any aspirations to a would-be Messiah. You know what would bring it about? They would die. (laughs) And when the would-be Messiah dies, one of two things would happen. Either that movement would just completely go away. Well, I guess that's not the Messiah. Or it would be taken up. The movement would be taken up by one of the Messiah's successors, usually a family member who would claim, well, I'm actually the Messiah. One of of those two things would happen. But what happened when Jesus died? It did not reflect either one of these known patterns. After Jesus died, no one took up his cause and claimed to be the Messiah. In fact, we even know that James, the brother of Jesus, would have been the ideal candidate to say, well, hey, I'm the Messiah. I'll carry this movement on. But no one, no Christian considered James the Messiah. But neither did the Jesus movement die out. You're sitting here today as proof that it has lasted. Christianity is alive and well, but it's still centered around one central belief. Not that Jesus was Lord, not that he was Messiah, but that he is Lord. This Messiah was uh, was not the Son of God. He is the Son of God. He is the anointed King. Now, what could possibly explain that? How could anybody for 2,000 years, carry on this idea that this Jesus was indeed the true, the real Messiah. And Paul has already told us in the, ver- in the fourth verse of the letter to the Romans. Here's what he said. This gospel is about his son, Jesus, who was declared to be the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. It's the bodily resurrection of the crucified, dead, and buried Jesus of Nazareth that gives new meaning to his death, far from being a defeat to his movement. The moment of his death ends up becoming the moment of the most decisive, greatest victory in the history of the universe. So admittedly, then, the entire scope of the Christian argument depends on one central claim. 
the veracity of the bodily resurrection from the dead of Jesus of Nazareth. Disprove the resurrection and time to go home. There's no Christianity left. It all hinges on this one central claim. But, but what if it's true? What if Jesus did indeed rise from the dead? Then the argument is that we now know not only when it is that God condemned sin, that is when he sent his son, but we also know where it is that God did it. He condemned sin in the flesh, Romans 8, 3 says, in the flesh, that is in the flesh of the Messiah. Now, the word flesh here is not meant to signify the skin, the physical body of Jesus, not only that. The word flesh here, in the flesh of the Messiah, is meant to teach us or point us to the totality of his human nature. Of course, that means he has a real body. What God had done is executed his punishment on sin in the one place where sin would be overthrown once and for all, in the human nature of his own son. So again, we're not wrong if this makes us think especially of the physical death of Christ on the cross. The Bible elsewhere affirms that. It was on the cross, Colossians 2, 13 through 15, where God triumphed over the power of sin. But, but that's not the whole of it. The problem here is we cannot separate Good Friday and Easter from Christmas. You can see both of them right here in Romans 8, 3. God condemned sin in the flesh of his own son, whom he sent, look what it says, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now that is the argument of Christmas. That's the meaning of incarnation. This Messiah, this king, did not drop down mysteriously out of heaven. He was born just like you. He entered the world as all of us do. In other words, this king was as human as you are. He did not he didn't come in our likeness that is as if he only appeared to be like us. That's not what Paul means here. He was really and truly human like like us. Now, Paul uses the word likeness because look what he says. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. And in this one place, Jesus was notably different. His humanity, though sinless, was still genuinely human. It would have been a well-known truth, something we have to explain in our day, but Biblical world would have understood this, that sin, to be a sinner, was not to be really human. Sin was an intruder. To be sinless was to be the kind of human God made us to be. So if Jesus came in the likeness of our sinful flesh, that is truly human, fully human, but nevertheless never sinning like you and me, then that means that his death meant something different than yours does. Are you with me? Now, we just sang a song a minute ago that caught my attention. Um, Is he worthy? And and part of that song says, is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone whole? Is there anyone who could take on sin and not die? 
Is there anyone who could take on sin and instead sin dies? Is there anyone? Is there anyone whose death would not be a defeat, but would be a victory? If Jesus was human like you, but whole, then do you see then what his death means? It means not that sin has triumphed over him, but that he has triumphed over sin. His death would not mean then the victory of sin, but rather the victory of the Son, the victory of the Son of God over sin once and for all. Now see now how it is that God defeated sin and evil and Satan and what that means for us. God defeated sin, we were told, when he sent his Son. That's when it happened time and place in history. He did it, as we have seen, in the very human nature of his son. But notice also what verse 3 says. God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and look at this, and for sin. For sin. The ESV contains a marginal note that the phrase here could be understood as a sin offering. In fact, That's how some English translations like the NIV or the CSB have it. But those are not actually interpretive translations. This exact Greek phrase is, in fact, the customary Greek translation for the particular Old Testament sacrifice known as the sin offering. So that seems to be exactly what Paul is saying. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh and... As a sin offering. The sin offering in the Old Testament is a sacrifice that was for the solution to sins of ignorance or sins done against the will. In other words, the kind of sin, the kind of sacrifice that's needed to remedy the exact problem of Romans chapter 7. All throughout chapter 7, which we said was most notably emblematic of the nation of Israel, herself part of fallen humanity. The problem Israel found herself in under the old covenant was this general inability to live as God had commanded, either because of ignorance or because Israel found herself doing things she didn't want to do, things she wished she could stop doing, but like a slave found herself compelled to go back time and time again. And the point that Paul is making here is not to take us back to the Old Testament religion and leave us there, but to show that Israel's particular problem so vividly described in chapter 7 is precisely what has been decisively solved in the sacrificial nature of Jesus' death. The point is to show us what God has done in the incarnation of his own son, in the person of Jesus. Jesus was sent to break the power of sin, to defeat it once and for all, so that, so that a new humanity could exist. The the kind of humanity that God intended all along. A kind of humanity where there's no longer enslavement to the controlling power of sin, like a slave having to do it over and over and over again. This is the gospel Paul preached. This is the gospel of which Paul was not ashamed. This is the gospel that was news, that sin as a power of condemnation over all humanity, indeed over all the universe, has itself been condemned. 
And if that's true then, if that's true, then that means that God is now bringing about, delivering on the promise, a promise of hope, a promise of life, a promise of human life, real human life that sin has prevented for far too long. This life, the life that God has planned all along for his creatures, is what would, that's that's the only thing that could remain. If, If Paul, if what Paul believed about the gospel of Jesus is true, then the the implications are stunning. All that could remain then, following God's great act of judgment against sin, is, well, life. Not death, life. That's exactly right. Life, think of it, life in God's kingdom. And it's life that's here, right now. For anyone who wants it. It's free. You can't earn it. But I want you to see this morning as we close. How it is you may lay hold of it. The beginning of verse 3. Now I know we've spent our whole time in verse 3. It's probably because it is one of the greatest summaries of the gospel that Paul preached. The summary of Paul's theology as you'll find anywhere. And the beginning of verse 3 has tripped up translators for generations. And yeah, I know, you're like, oh, okay, here, here he goes. Here goes Ben. He's going to, like, set the record straight, right? Like, nobody else has figured this out. Well, I just want you to see that the beginning of verse 3, by all, I think by every English translation I looked at has taken an interpretation of verse 3. It's the nature of Bible interp- of translation, by the way. There is no such thing. Uh, well, there's no such thing as a Bible that is a literal interpretation, literal translation. Like if you are looking for that, you wouldn't be able to read it. <laughs> Here's why. Because what Paul does at the beginning of verse 3 is probably an example of a particular grammatical reality uh, which is an unexpected interruption in the grammatical flow of thought. Here, here's how you want a literal reading of Romans 8.3. This is what it would say. For the impossibility of the law, because it was weakened by the flesh, God condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as a sin offering. In other words, Paul began verse 3 talking or wanting to say something about the law's incapability. And then he just stopped. <laughs> he just stopped and said, God condemns sin in the flesh. So what was Paul thinking? What, what did he think the law could not do? Well, the law we know certainly cannot save. We already know this because... Not because it has nothing to do with salvation, but because, as we've already seen all throughout Romans chapter 6 and 7, because sin has taken advantage of the law. So it would be a mistake then, a a horrible mistake, 
for you or I or anyone else to look to the law of God. That is, to the things God commands, to the things God instructs, and hope that there we would find the life that we yearn for if we don't first look to Christ who breaks the power of sin that has taken advantage of the law. Do you see that? So practically this means not that we should not pay attention to God's instructions, to God's commands, but that we must constantly, repetitiously, zealously take note of Christ. You open your Bible in the morning and you say, I want to know what God's will is for my life. I want to know what God wants me to do. That's not bad, but... You ought to open your Bible and say first, before I can even think about what God wants, what God wills for me, what God expects me to do, I first need, before before I get insight for living, I need insight for seeing. I need insight to see Christ in all the scriptures. I have to see Jesus. Only Jesus can be the rescue from the wretched person that I am, Paul says at the end of Romans chapter 7. Now, our text this morning could not be clearer. Here's what it says, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for, for whom? For whom? For those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the good news. We are not preaching good news if we just simply say, there's now no condemnation, no matter what, for anybody, just do whatever you want. No, there's now no condemnation for those who find the only place where sin and its power is broken, and that is in Jesus. That's the only place. It's only for those who are in Christ, united to Christ. Salvation is found only in Christ. Christ. So what you and I have to do is get into him. (laughs) We have to get into Jesus. As John Calvin wrote, first, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us, listen, and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us at all. Verse 2 says the same thing. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ, only in Christ, from the law of sin and death. So there is freedom from the guilt and shame of the law that has been seized by sin. There is rescue and relief from the slavery of Satan. But, oh, brothers and sisters, don't you see? Don't you see this morning? That freedom is found only in one place. It's not found in you doing what God commands. It is found only, only in Jesus Christ. And this is not as religious a claim as it sounds. Because the Bible says in John 3, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Why? He tells us. Because the world is already condemned. The world is already condemned. Under the condemnation of sin. Death is the undeniable proof of that. So what God did was sent his son into the world. Not to condemn the world. But so that the world might be saved. 
through him. The salvation that the Bible is talking about is the salvation of your life, your real human existence on planet Earth. Your life matters. He came to rescue your existence, your bodily reality, your humanness. This is why he sent his son to save. In that third chapter of of John's gospel, he goes on to say, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. So the final judgment of God has already been declared in the sending of his son. And this judgment of God is the condemnation of sin. It is a devastating judgment. But if you're in Christ, it is also a life-giving judgment. Here in Romans 8, verse 4 says, God condemns sin in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. This is what the law wanted to do, but couldn't do it because it was weakened by the flesh. Those of us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, we'll find out more next week. I want you to see though right here, this is what God meant to do in sending his son and condemning sin. He meant to bring about what it is the law wants to do, but because of sin couldn't do. He meant to give us life. Not just some mysterious, disembodied existence after you die. He meant to give us life, resurrection, a body. And he gave us this life, he says, now. There is therefore now no condemnation. There is life now. Your life, your body That's why Clyde was right. It's right here. I have it. Did you read my manuscript already? Did you see that? There is new life, eternal life. And it's already begun if you're in Christ. It's already begun. So today is the third week of Advent. And the theme for this week is joy. Um, the pals lit the third candle, and it's pink. We were, I asked a group in prayer before the service why there's a pink candle, and John had the best answer. He said some kid came and broke the other purple candle. So, you know, so that was good. I like that. There's actually a reason. It's tradition. This isn't in the Bible. You get that, right? But th- this helps. This helps. There's a reason why we have a different candle in week three. So purple in the Christian tradition is the color of penance or fasting. It's the traditional color that's used during the time of Lent, for example. So actually during the Christmas season, as we prepare for the celebration, the great feast day, there are actually three weeks in the Christian tradition that are supposed to be pointing us to... um, I don't know how else to say it, that the agony, the affliction of waiting and preparing. <laughs> so if you're like me, and right now you find yourself like, oh, Christmas is just a burden. <laughs> the preparations, it's hard, right? It's overwhelming. Isn't this crazy? We're trying to celebrate. How many of you are exhausted right now trying to get ready for Christmas? Anybody out there? Yeah, Okay. That's kind of the way it's supposed to be. 
The misery of the preparation is supposed to help us remember the hope of the world. It's only in the coming of Christ. The peace, it's only in the coming of Christ. But then right here at week three, you got a pink candle. What's up with that? Pink is the, is the traditional color, not of repentance, not of fasting, not of affliction. It's the color of triumph, of celebration. And because week three, the theme of week three traditionally is joy, you can't have purple. <laughs> you can't have purple for week three. You got to have a different color that reminds us that in the midst of the waiting, in the midst of the preparation, ah, yes, we know why we're doing this. We're not waiting with the expectation of, well, I hope it'll come. We're waiting with the expectation that uh, he has come. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. The day of his arrival was, in the words of the angels to the shepherds of Bethlehem, the day of good news, of great joy, that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, the Messiah, the Lord. You do not have to wonder, who is it? And where will the victory be? For God has acted in history and has brought it about. So if you understand these words, if you can comprehend what this announcement means, then Christmas, the day in which we celebrate the birth of Jesus, will be a day of great joy, regardless of how you're doing with your Christmas shopping or your holiday preparations. Let's rejoice in it. Pray with me.